Hey, can I just tell you something really uh, interesting about that passage we just sang? How many of you know that comes from uh, Numbers chapter 6? It's called the Priestly Blessing. You all know that, right? My, my wife, uh, who I've been married, I've been married to my wife for 30 years, and she, uh, she studies Hebrew. And she told me one day about that passage. You know, in, in number six, it says, May the Lord lift up his countenance toward you and give you peace. Do you know what it literally means? It literally means this. The Lord kneel before you like a man would kneel before a young woman to, uh, to um, propose marriage. The Lord kneel before you and look up toward you and give you shalom, which is peace, well-being, overflowing goodness, kindness, mercy. Every, it's like every good word all rolled into one. While we were singing that, like whenever we sing that song, I do exactly what Lyndon suggested we do. I think about my children. I think I'm, I, since I was here last time, I became a granddad. Uh, I, uh, I was in a church in Auckland a while ago and they were singing it. And I said, and they were standing there and nothing wrong with this. They were singing it like this. And I said, I, I interrupted them and I said, hey, why don't we sing it like this out over the community? Why don't we begin to sing, may his presence be upon you and on a thousand generations of your family. The Lord bless you and keep you. I just, um, uh, I pray for you guys quite often. And every now and again, God will give me something and I'm like, oh, well, we'll see what, see what they think. And I fire it off to Lyndon. One of the words I had for you was of you being in a building and there was an earthquake. Sorry about the earthquake analogy. I know that's not something you're terribly f fond of down here. But I saw all the walls falling outwards. And I feel like, you know, as we sing things like the Lord bless you and keep you singing, singing it out there, singing it over the community that we're here. We're here to see Jesus loved and worshipped and made known in the community. Can we sing that one more time? And let's, let's actually sing it over Rolleston, over Canterbury, over, over, over New Zealand. Can we do that? Okay, this time we're going to do it standing up though. I don't, so you've prayed it, you've sung it over your life, you've sung it over your family and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. Now let's actually sing it over every human being that lives in this community. Lord, we love you. We're so hungry for more of you. We're so hungry that, Lord, our lives would do what David said in Psalm 23 they would do, that our cup would overflow. And goodness and mercy would follow us everywhere that we go all the days of our lives. That men, women and children all around us and everywhere would come to know you as Lord and Savior. We pray for a great revival to sweep through our land. A great awakening, softening the hearts of many people. And that many would become followers of Jesus. And I pray God that many would become followers of Jesus as a result of this fellowship existence. We're asking, Lord, would you release your grace upon us, even as we gather tonight and into. Lord, do a new thing amongst us, and Lord, find us ready and fully prepared for the days that we are in now and the days that are yet ahead of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Absolutely marvelous, marvelous, marvelous. Okay, why don't you grab a seat? Thank you.
Anna, I may need your services again, but not you. You, you can give your fingers a rest, and then I'll. Hey, um. So here's a weird thing. How are you, by the way? I'd say it's nice to see you, but I can't really. Um, it's uh, it's uh, it's really nice to be with you. And um, while we were worshiping, I was kind of arguing with the Lord because he he gave me a word for you, and it kind of it's the sort of word that you could probably misunderstand. I felt like he said to tell you this, you've done well. And you go, oh, that's just nice. See, you'd misunderstand that as a sentimental word, you know, like here's, you know, here's the guest speaker. He's going to say something nice so that we like him. But I feel like, I feel like it with a burning in my heart, I feel like the Lord says, you've done well. And I saw this weird picture of a car trying to drive a uh, a slalom with orange cones and instead of missing the orange cones it was smacking into all the orange cones and I was like what is that and I felt like the Lord said that was the way that you've navigated I saw it's like as a church and as families and individuals you have kept staring towards somehow the cones represented the Lord you've kept staring towards the Lord when many have stared away and wound up distracted and wound up off message, and I just feel like the Lord wants you to know you've done well. And it's particularly important for every one of you, when I say that, you go, I'm the exception to that. Maybe Andre and Hannah, Lyndon and Kath, they've done well, but, but me, not so much. And I feel like the Lord actually wants you to know you've done well. I also want you to know that 100 years ago this week, Smith Wigglesworth, how many of you have heard of Smith Wigglesworth? Smith Wigglesworth in New Zealand, 100 years, hi Irene. I recognize, now I can see, I recognize the purple. <laughs> Lovely to see you. Irene, uh, Irene is a friend from, uh, from I met her in Tiana. A hundred years ago this week, Smith Wigglesworth was concluding a series of three weeks of revival meetings in the Wellington Town Hall. The first night, 800 people came. The second, 1,500. The third night and every night for the next three weeks, 3,000 people jammed the Wellington Town Hall and there were another 1,000 outside in the Wellington weather in June with the Salvation Army guy preaching to them. And those meetings were marked. 2,500 New Zealanders became followers of Jesus. They were marked by uh, people that were blind seeing, people that were deaf hearing, people that were using wheelchairs and crutches being healed. And 100 years ago this week, Smith Wigglesworth prophesied, he said, there will come another revival that will make this revival that we have enjoyed, these three weeks in the Wellington Town Hall, seem as if it were nothing by comparison. 100 years ago. 100 years ago this That's pretty interesting, eh? Especially when we're living in a time when, have you noticed that Kiwis, after all the turbulence and all the weirdness of the last couple of years, I don't know about you, but I'm having the best times of ministry totally outside of church. I was digging a hole in my house. I hate digging. Hey, how are you? And I said, oh, yeah, I'm good. Nice to meet you. She said, my name's Bianca. I said, I'm Chris. And, um, and she said, you're a minister, aren't you? And I was like, you know, you never quite know what to do with that. And I said, well, yes, yes, I am. She said, is it a cult? <laughs> and I said to her, I said, well, look, if it was, I wouldn't tell you. I said, no, it's not a cult. We're just, just, you know. And then she said this. She said, we're not believers in God at all, but our 11-year-old daughter is absolutely fascinated with the Bible and is reading it all the time and asking us questions. Can you help us? 
Well, yes, yes, I can. <laughs> and anyway, so um, we are living in a, in a really interesting moment. And I just feel like the Lord wants you. He actually wants you encouraged because the last two years have been very disorienting for many people. And I just feel like he wants you encouraged. I feel like, to say it again, you've done well. You've done well as a church. And many of you, even the ones that you, you feel the opposite when I say that, the Lord's saying, you've done well. You go, how have I done well? You're still here, aren't you? I remember a song that we used to sing, and it just had this line in it. If you don't quit, you'll win. If you don't quit, you'll win. Okay. I want to talk to you about um, something a little bit odd. And this is only going to be brief. I did a search of popular pictures of Jesus on the internet. Okay. That looks like a Jewish carpenter, doesn't it? Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, he's got, he's got darker hair. So, so this is, you know, I mean, this is kind of what you'd expect, right? You, you know, there's no surprise there. Okay. Now, I'm not knocking the, the artistry that goes into, I can't draw, so I'm not knocking the artistry. But when you search popular pictures of Jesus, Apart from the strange theme that Jesus was obviously a white British guy in the winter. <laughs> Aside from that, all of the pictures have a common theme. And the common theme is the suffering savior. The man of sorrows. The, the brief moment. You know Jesus is from forever past till forever future. Sins. And when you look up pictures of Jesus... They are just about always pointing to that brief moment, which is less than 0.0000000001% of his everlasting existence. Look at this. If you've got your Bibles, uh, you can open them or turn them on to Acts chapter 1. And so you've got Acts 1 8, where Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea. So then look in verse 9. It says this, now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So they're standing on the Mount of Olives, and now suddenly Jesus goes up into the sky. Think about that for a moment. When was the last time you were standing on a hill and a guy went up into the clouds? That's what happens here. What would you be doing if a man who you've been with for the last three and a half years, not only has he now been crucified and got up, but now he's gone up into the clouds right in front of you? They looked steadfastly toward heaven. Behold, two men stood by them in white who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? That's a ridiculous question, isn't it? A man has just flown up into the sky. Hello? It's like, of course you'd be, you'd be like, ah -ha -ha. Now look at this. Remember? This is just moments up. They say this. These are two angels. This same Jesus who was taken up into heaven will so come in like manner. And what they're saying is, he's going to come back 
just the way he went up. So right there at that moment, he's just gone up, and immediately the angels turn up and say this, he's coming back. So they're saying, don't just stand there looking backwards. Now I want you and you must begin not just looking backwards to the cross, as important and foundational as that is, they said, now you must look forwards. To sort of paraphrase Bill Johnson, if they'd stood there looking backwards, the church would have been a monument. Why is this so important? Well, if you look at those popular Jesus pictures, they're all looking backwards. And I want to talk to you about this. Is I believe that we are in a pretty significant right now. And as Christians, we love to toss around the term transition. You know, if you ask Christians, how are you doing? Oh, I'm in a, I'm in a transition right now. You know, and that's okay. We're pilgrims. We're always in transition. Or, you know, like we love to talk about our seasons, don't we? Oh, I'm in a, I'm in a difficult season right now. I, I'm not sure when I'm not in a difficult season. They always all seem to be difficult and excellent and wonderful and horrible all at the same time. I want you to think for a moment about the, the, the guy that wrote the book of Revelation. Don't get concerned. I'm not settling in to preach for you for a long time. Who wrote the book of Revelation? Paul about that nickname? He gave it to himself. That term, the disciple whom Jesus loved, only appears in the writings of that Andre and Hannah love. <laughs> you imagine that. Okay, so Jesus, uh, uh, John the Beloved. Now, here's something we know. Of the original 12 disciples, Judas took his own life. Ten of the disciples lost their lives for the gospel, and only one man lived to old age, and it was John the Beloved. But he lived to old age because when they tried to take his life by boiling him in oil, he swam around in it supernaturally like a sparkle. So what they did is they exiled him and they stuck him on the island of Patmos to keep him out of trouble. Would you suspect that if you try to boil someone in oil and they treat it like it's a spa, that person potentially is a problem to you? Agreed? Are you, you doing okay? Okay. So they stuck him out on the island of Patmos. And it says this. It says in Revelation 1, verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now notice that he wasn't complaining and moaning. He was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I think a lot of fragile faith church attenders that are not genuine disciples, potentially when hardship comes, they're not, they're not like this. They're not in the spirit on the Lord's day. They haven't steered towards the Lord. They're like, oh, well, stuff that. It didn't work for me. That's why I say you've done well. You're still here been turbulent it's been difficult there's been questions there's been accusations there's been fractures and divisions and fears and insecurity about the future and yet here we still are and we're still worshiping and burning and saying god we want more of you that's a good thing give yourself a give yourself a, a little half a moment you know as kiwis we're not very good at the old good on you mate you're doing well but you are doing well so the disciple whom Jesus loved is on the island of Patmos for the testimony of Jesus. Now, this disciple whom Jesus loved, he wasn't just one of the 12. He was one of the three, Peter, James, and John, that got to do all the good stuff. Mount of Transfiguration, little girl being raised from the dead. He got the cool nickname, Son, Son of Thunder. Okay? He was the one that, that leaned over when they were at the table, reclining at the table. He leaned over and put his head on Jesus' chest and probably heard Jesus' heartbeat. 
He knew Jesus. Jesus was Galilee. And now he's on the island of Patmos, and he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and this happened. I heard a voice behind me, and I turned to look to see who spoke. Okay, now, now look at this, not, not in a sterile religious way. Put yourself in this. In the midst of seven lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in the fire, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shone. And he realized, this is Jesus, but not Jesus as I knew him. Look at his response. Revelation 1.17. When I saw him, I said, hey, bro, good to see you again. What was his response? It says he fell at his feet as though dead. He was overwhelmed by the man that he saw. How, how many of you have uh, heard of or know the testimony of Ian McCormick? You know Ian McCormick, the jellyfish man. How many of you have heard of the jellyfish man? Uh, and when he was in his 20s, he was stung by a jellyfish and he died and went to heaven and anyway came back to life. He lives in Tauranga now and he and I are good friends and I, I we go fishing together. I was talking to him about this one day and he said, you know his eyes of fire? He said, they're blue. And I was, I'd always suspected they were blue for some reason. He says, Jesus has got eyes of fire. He said, I saw them. They're blue. He said, it says he was wearing a robe down to the ground. Ian said to me, I was trying to sit in a cafe, have a flat white with him when he told me this. He said, when he opens his robe, you can see moving galaxies on the inside of it. Here is my opinion. We are in a transition that the Holy Spirit is leading us in. From our focus, if you just hear the first part of this, you're going to think I'm a heretic and you're going to be looking for another church to go to in the morning. We are in a transition from our focus being only on the cross to now our focus needing to be on the fact that this king who died on the cross will return. I'm not minimizing the cross. This cross is the foundation of everything we stand on. Without cross, we would be here today singing of a heaven we couldn't go to and fearing a hell we couldn't avoid. We preach Christ and him crucified. But nowhere through the Bible is the cross presented by the New Testament writers as the primary motivation for a burning heart and enduring to the end. Guess what? One day, every one of us will see him face to face. And he won't look like that. I'm not being rude about whoever drew that. I can't draw. There's some good artistry there, but he's not looking like that. Guess what? Your shadow of eternity, because we are closer to the day when his feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives than we are to the day when his feet went up. I'm not telling you Jesus is coming back a week from Tuesday, so begin to evacuate society. No. My son's a swimmer, and uh, I, I've got a video. Oh, I'll just get rid of that picture. I've got that looking at me. 
I've got a picture of him swimming in the 400 metres freestyle at the National Champs a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago. And there's this part where he turns, so he swum 300 metres and he turns to swim the last 100 metres and you can see his kick triples as he turns for the last 100. Why? Because the finish line is in sight. I don't know if Jesus is coming back in 10 years or 100 years. That's irrelevant. But I know that we are living in the shadow of eternity. Eternity is bearing down on the planet. And you and I, we want to be Matthew 24, 13. Those that endure to the end. But we endure to the end when we are fueled by the fact, you know, this man, Jesus Christ, is going to return to the earth. Do you know what it's going to be like? Nope, me neither. But I do know this, one day, how, how many of you have ever prayed this prayer? Oh, come Lord Jesus. How many of you just have that sort of, I just have it all the time. I'm like, I, I want him, if I'm driving in my car, I want him in my car. If I'm preaching to you, I want him in the room. If I'm, if I'm at home, I'm praying in the morning, I'm saying, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. You know, one day you'll be out doing your everyday revival business. Raising your kids, raising your grandkids, sharing the gospel, driving a truck, being a school teacher, being whatever God has given you to do in the vineyard. And you'll just be out there doing your thing and you're just like, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. The Bible says there'll be a moment where there'll be another voice that says, yes, come. Do you know what happens then? The sky goes dark, a trumpet blasts, and the sky splits in two from east to west and a man appears in the sky riding on a white horse. He's got a face seven times brighter than the sun, hair like wool, eyes like fire. Somehow he's got a sword coming out of his mouth. And I yeah. in that moment, he will be 10,000 times better than the wildest dreams you'd ever had of him. He will be worth every day that was costly to be a believer. He'll be worth every risk you ever took, every dollar you ever gave in response to his nudgings on the inside. He will be 10,000 times better than your wildest imagining. And then the Bible makes it clear that one day we stand before him and he says, either depart from me, I never knew you, or well done, good and faithful servant. And if that's not something worth getting out of bed for, I don't know what is. I spoke at a men's conference way back, like 10 years ago or something, and it was a very manly men's conference. They, they had camouflage nets and Harley Davidsons. They even had somehow, they'd got a tank. There was a tank parked out front of the church. It was almost like testosterone dripping down the walls. But I was just sitting there as we were having manly worship. It was all male worship. And then uh, before, um, before I got up to speak, they had a Tim Taylor-style grunting competition. Remember Home Improvement and Tim Taylor? They did that. And I'm just thinking, this is, this is good, but this is just kind of stereotypical. And I thought, I just want to shake things up a bit. So when I got up, they introduced me, and there was all this, you know, as I got up to speak. And, you know, like I say, testosterone dripping down the walls. And I got up and I said to them, I said, I became a believer on the 17th of December, 1985. And the reason I'm still a believer now is because I fell in love with a man and I want to marry him. <laughs> and I did and I do. The cross cannot be minimized. 
These are the things you should do because of what Jesus has done. And particularly with young people, that's not a motivator. But what about a man with fiery blue eyes and a face seven times brighter than the sun who is worth everything we could ever give him? What about a man who does this, who kneels before us and looks up at us, at a saviour who is the king of all kings and is going to put the devil in a hole in chains for a thousand years? What about that man? And what about living before this blazing furnace of love that burns in his eyes, that has power over every demon? Oh, there's too many things to talk about, and I promised you I wasn't going to be long. I've just got one more thing to share with you. Can I do one more thing? Be right? I, are you okay? Some of you are looking a little concerned. Hi. Here's the last thing. I was praying some, for some friends in Oregon. I used to go to Oregon a lot. And this, uh, these friends, they run a church, and they've just moved into a, like an old Methodist building, even though they're raging, blazing Pentecostals. And they've got this old Methodist church building. And I was praying for them. And while I was praying for them, this huge fireball. And it was just this fireball was hanging there, and it was moving and bristling. And there were, does this sound familiar? Tongues of fire coming out of it. And everywhere a tongue of fire landed, there was baptism in the Holy Spirit. There was healing. There was salvation. There was deliverance. And the tongues of fire were not landing in the building. Some of them were landing outside the building. And I was looking at this and I was going, wow. And then I kept looking at it. I saw that that Big fireball was there when the church, but it was also there when the building was empty. And it reminded me of this Bible verse. I meditated in 2009. I meditated on this Bible verse for three months because God spoke to me through it, but I didn't know what he said. Here's the Bible verse. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with the everlasting burning? When I meditated on that, I realized that's not a question, that's an invitation. In Deuteronomy, the Bible says, our God fire. So this is the God who is a consuming fire saying, who, who can dwell with me? Not just who will date me by visiting once a week on a Sunday, but who will dwell with me? He's saying, I'm coming to dwell, not to visit. I am a consuming Who can handle the jandal and dwell with me? What you do with that, but everything in me says I want that, even as dangerous as that sounds. I told my wife about it because I used to pray in my garage. I want to see God's face. I want to dwell with the consuming fire. She said, you'll blow up. And I said, but at least I'll do it happy. You come out to the garage and there's just like a little pile of ashes. You'll know. You'll know that I died happy. Cause of death, face of God. <laughs> He doesn't want a date. He wants a bride who will dwell with the consuming fire. In a different context, the proverb says, no one can scoop fire into their lap and not be burned. This is dangerous. To dwell with this God who is a consuming fire, it marks you. It changes your value system. It turns your world right side up. You start seeing things differently, and you start living in the shadow of this glorious and soon coming king. So I wrote all that down and I sent it off to my friends. And the moment I sent it off, I hit send 
and I sent it off to them. The moment I'd done that, I heard the Lord say, what about you? Do you want this? And suddenly I realized it wasn't a prophetic word for them. It was a prophetic word for any who are hungry. The God who is a consuming fire is wanting to come and dwell with his people. A fiery, blazing furnace of love and purpose that sets the heart on fire. The fiery, blazing inferno of his presence that gets a hold of a young person that was raised to believe they're a chance evolutionary accident, blows it out the window in just a moment where they know that they were created, not evolved, and there is a purpose for their life. The fiery furnace that takes a hold of, you know, like, like the, the, client, the political part of the climate change thing has, has terrified our young people. And this fiery furnace, this perfect love drives out all fear. And they live with confidence knowing my God has got me and the planet is not going to become uninhabitable. And I'm not doomed to just live a pointless life and be left dead bones spinning on an orbiting sarcophagus. My God is alive and he's got me. So my question to you is, do you want it? Oh, with all my heart, I want it. And I feel like the Lord is saying to you, you're doing well. But I feel like he's also saying, okay, all right, Hannah, can I, can I borrow her, please? Say, so how you doing? You all right? You're very quiet. I've been here before, so, you know, we're, we're friends now, aren't we? You, how we doing? You all right? You know what I believe? I, you know, who's ever had that feeling where your heart burns? Have you noticed in the Bible everything Jesus, I'm not talking heartburn like you need to go and take something for it, but you know that thing, it can, it can happen, you're listening to a sermon, you're listening to a worship song, you're reading the Bible and your heart just burns. Who's, who's had that? Have you noticed how addictive that is? I love that. Have you noticed in the Bible everything Jesus touches seems to catch fire? His throne's on fire. His body's on fire. The river coming from under his throne is on fire. He's in the burning bush. The bush is on fire. He talks to the disciples on the road. Their hearts are on fire. I believe we were made to live with a burning heart. And the church gets into trouble when our hearts don't burn. When we're not burning with this blazing inferno of love for the Son of God. And with this blazing anticipation. Number one, that he will come. And number two, between now and then, by golly, it's time to swim for the finish line like crazy because we're here to do the works he preordained in advance for us to do. Shaka Mahunda. That's Hebrew. No, it's not really. Would you mind standing up? I just, I just have a, a couple of uh, words I want to give to some people but um, and then um, we're going to pray for people and we're going to open it up more widely because God's decentralizing his church guess what if for example if I am a five-fold person my job is to equip the saints for the works of ministry it's not the other way around where your job is to equip me to do the ministry it's the other way around 